Welcome to the seventh session of our series on the Apostles' Creed, what it says and ways it means. Uh, my name is Brent Strawn. I teach at Duke Divinity School. So this is our seventh in this series on the Creed, and just to uh, give us a bit of review, we've been walking through the Creed in some detail, uh, armed with two crucial creedal questions. Do you believe in this Creed? And secondly, how do you believe this Creed? How do you put it into practice? Uh, being a Christian has meant, as I've said before, for centuries, even millennia, believing and practicing this creed or something very much like it. We've also had in mind two mottos from Nicholas Lash, a theologian who's worked on the creed. One of them is this, short words and endless learning. Its creed is short, it doesn't take much to memorize it, but it takes a lifetime to learn what it means and to live it out. And the second motto is closely related. It's uh, what the creed says briefly, the scriptures say at length, or vice versa, what the scriptures say at length, the creed says briefly. So again, the creed is a summary, an entry point. Scripture remains an open book uh, and, and is needed for us to uh, consult in order to find out more about what we believe and what's summarized for us crisply in the creed. So, so far we've covered quite a bit in the creed. Uh, we began with the I believe section of the creed, which is like unto saying I do in, in a marriage ceremony. It's a pledge. It's a confession of, of trust and faith and practice. We also covered the God part of the creed and then spent three sessions on the middle uh, media section of the creed that has to do with Jesus Christ. In the last session, we dealt with the first half of the Holy Spirit section of the Creed, the third and final part, up through the part that speaks about the communion of saints. We still have one more session to go uh, and to round out this section on the Holy Spirit. But before we turn to the rest of the Holy Spirit, uh, I want to reiterate a couple things. One is, again, an insight from Nicholas Lash, <clears throat> that in the Creed, we don't believe in three gods, but one God. And we believe in three ways in that one God. And one of the ways that that interrelationship of the triune God is manifested in the creed is by the way the three parts interrelate with one another. The Holy Spirit present in the conception, present in creation. Uh, the Son present in the fatherness of God, and uh, so on and so forth. So, that means, therefore, as a part, that this, this, this third part of the creed is uh, not just about the Holy Spirit, and the entirety of this third part is not just about the effects of the Holy Spirit's wind, but also it is about God. The Holy Spirit, as I said, present at creation, as we talked about in the last session, and present in the conception of Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Those moments, too, are effects of the Spirit's wind, God at work in the Spirit. So let's turn now to the last part of the Holy Spirit section. It begins with, uh, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. There's lots to talk about here. Sin is a heavy word. It's a churchy word. It's a theological word. We don't hear about it much these days, except occasionally on country music songs, maybe a rap song here and there, or a hard rock heavy metal song. But, but it's not kind of common parlance anymore to speak of sin or sins. Sin is a wrongdoing for sure, we get that, but insofar as it's a churchy or theological word, it means that the ante's been upped. God is somehow in the room when we speak about sin. 
There's lots of definitions of sin that have been offered in the Christian tradition across the years. I can't adjudicate all those now, but let's just draw the biggest picture for the time being about sin. And I'm citing here from Paul's letter to the Romans 3.23. All have sinned, he says, and have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, sinning may not be exactly the same as falling short of the glory of God, but let's just say so for a minute. And, in, and regardless, all have sinned according to that text and, and come up short in some way and in truth in lots of ways. In fact, the creed speaks not of sin singular, but sins plural. There's lots of sins to worry about when you stop and think about it. Our own sin and others' sins, and that would include our sins against other people and other people's sins against us. And God, again, because of that sin word, is involved in the room. God's in the room sort of participating, wondering about this, upping the ante, saying this isn't just a wrongdoing, a minor infraction of some sort. This is sin. It concerns me. I'm concerned about it. In fact, there's so much sin to worry about, our own and others, that it's downright depressing if you stop and think about it. And again, it's made worse because God is somehow in the room when we talk about sin. God is is worried about it, concerned about it. This is not good stuff that's happening. This is not God's glory. It's falling short of God's glory. God is disappointed with it, according to Scripture. God is sad about it. In times, God is even mad about it, according to Scripture. Sin, sins, plural, are real and depressing when you stop and think about it. But there's more to say in the Apostles' Creed, because in the Apostles' Creed, Christians speak of the forgiveness of sin. So let's go back to Paul, Romans 3 again, the very next verse. Not only have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but also, Romans 3.24, all are now justified in, by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. All that sin can be and is now forgiven, Paul says, in Jesus Christ. That is an amazing claim. You know, if you stop and think about it, and, and if we're honest about it, it's, it's a claim that's actually hard to believe. It's hard to believe that our sins can be forgiven, that they, that they are forgiven. Those sins that you can think about right now that you'd wish you'd never done, that you remember to this day, that, that can be forgiven. That is forgiven. And others, too, that all of that can be forgiven. That's hard to believe, and that's why we have to remind ourselves that it is true by reciting the Apostles' Creed. That's why it's important not to just remind ourselves of it, but to confess it. Credo, I believe, I promise, I pledge, I trust, in fact, in the forgiveness of sins. Yes, even each and every one of my sins particularly those that I think are unforgivable. And yes, each and every one of other people's sins, particularly those that I think are unforgivable, including their sins against me. Both of those kinds, others' sins and my sins, are hard to believe that those can be forgiven. But yet Christians say we believe in the forgiveness 
of sins. And so both of types of sin, if and when their forgiveness is, is experienced in our lives or in others' lives, in reconciliations big or small, human or divine, whenever reconciliation is experienced, forgiveness of sin is experienced here and there, now and then, however, all of that, whenever it happens, is evidence of the Holy Spirit, evidence of the Spirit's wind, a trace of God's hand in our lives and in others. The creed next moves from forgiveness of sins to resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I want to take these up sort of together. But at the same time, they're not exactly the same. In this way, they're like uh, believing in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Similarities, then maybe some overlap, but not precisely identical. So let's begin with resurrection of the body. Resurrection is a big word, and of course, we associate it primarily with Christ on Easter Sunday morning. And so the resurrection of the body that Christians confess to believe in, to pledge themselves to in the creed, is is like Christ in some ways. Christians confess belief that Jesus is, as the New Testament puts it, just the firstborn from the dead. That's, That's a really kind of fascinating phrase. It occurs two or three, four times in the New Testament. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Well, Firstborn is pretty impressive, you know, that's the first child, but you only have a firstborn child if you have other children. So the New Testament envisions lots of kids that will follow their elder brother in the resurrection from the dead. That's what Christians believe when we say, I confess and believe in the resurrection uh, of the body. Now, the second little bit of the body is important to pause on. This Comes, this language comes especially from the Apostle Paul, who speaks of the resurrection of the body. And a couple things are important to stress here. The resurrection of the body indicates that the, the resurrected life that Christians believe in and confess is not one that's ethereal or you know, purely spiritual, ghostly in some way, as a soul disembodied from, from a body. Uh, there is, according to Christian belief, some sort of body in the resurrection. And we know this according to the New Testament from Christ's own resurrection. In the Gospel of, of, of Luke and, and the other uh, resurrection appearances, he has breakfast, right, with the disciples. And then Luke says, look, uh, give me something to eat. And uh, does, does, a, does a spirit um, have bones? So uh, it is a resurrected body, uh, different. What kind? Exactly? We don't know. Again, we have to only appeal to and think about Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, as the New Testament discusses it. And if we look at that, we think the resurrection body must be a glorified body, similar to what was before, but nevertheless different. Recognizable, but somehow better. Upgraded. 2.0. Here's where I like to think of the Apostles' Creed intersecting with some of those other creeds we joked about already in the teaser to this series. So here's where I would like the resurrection of the body and the creed to intersect with the movie Creed. Because I'm hoping the uh, resurrected body has me looking a lot like Adonis Creed uh, in, in, in Creed 1 and 2. That's, is that too much to hope for? I, I, I would kind of like to believe that. I'd like to kind of include that Michael B. Jordan uh, kind of physique. I'm kind of hoping that for the resurrected body. Now, the next part of the creed speaks of life everlasting. The resurrected body, therefore, is for something. It is for life everlasting. But what does that look like? Again, we don't know for sure. All we can say is uh, that 
we have to look to the, the New Testament and to what we know about Christ. Let's, let's hope that it's not just uh, playing stringed instruments on fluffy clouds with chubby babies. That sounds incredibly boring, if you ask me. But if we look at Jesus Christ as an example, and even just think about the creed, we have some clues as to what life everlasting might involve. So remember, according to the creed, Jesus rose from the dead, was resurrected, and then ascended. Those two things, resurrected and ascended, correspond to, I believe, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But then the creed goes on to talk about how Jesus is now also seated, getting served, as it were, because his work is done, and will come again to judge. So Jesus is doing things now, according to the creed, and has work still yet to do. So also, presumably, for us, following Christ, our elder brother, firstborn from the dead, means that presumably we will also have things to do. So we too might have rest from our labors, which would be similar to Christ being seated. But we may have important tasks to do, things like serving the one who rightfully sits on the throne. And who knows, maybe we will have still other work to do of which only God knows. I kind of like that idea. In fact, I kind of like that idea a lot, along with its correlate, which is that maybe what's going on down here is all just practice and prelude for the real deal, the big game, the ultimate work up there someday. If that's true, then all that's going on down here now is temporary, it's, it's not worth our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate pledge and trust. That's, that's only reserved for God, the triune God that Christians confess. But nevertheless, all that's going on down here is important. It's, it's crucial. It's practice. It's training in righteousness, in preparation for what God has in mind for us to do next. Well, with that... We are done with the Holy Spirit section and the entire creed. And it ends not with death, but with life. We tend to say life and death, that's a very human phrase, life and then death. But the creed ends not with death, but with life, death and life. That's how the creed ends because that's how Jesus Christ ends. And it's actually not true that we're completely done with the creed. There's one more very important element, amen. But what does amen mean? And what does it mean to say amen, not only at the end of the Holy Spirit section, but the entire creed? Well, we'll take that question up along with several other important things too in our next and final session. See you next time.